Hi everyone, Sarah Schaefer here. Thanks for checking out Art History Happy Hour. The episode that follows is back from when our podcast was called State of the Arts, and you can now find our episode blog and other resources, including a link to our Patreon page at arthistoryhappyhour.com. Welcome to State of the Arts, the podcast that explores how art and its history shape our world today. My name is Sarah Schaefer. And I'm Tina Rivers-Ryan. And with Christmas just around the corner, uh, we were looking around for some Christmas or holiday-related stories, and we found one uh, that interested us about how the Thomas Kincaid Company uh, is releasing a limited edition print in conjunction with the 10th anniversary of the movie The Polar Express, based on Chris Van Allsburg's book. And that cracked me up in the first place, that it's in conjunction with the 10th year release, uh, 10th anniversary of the movie not of the book. Right. Um, uh, so uh, Thomas Kincaid died over two years ago on April 6th, uh, April 6, 2012, but his name st- namesake company is, is still out there, still producing works. Um, and uh, for many art historians and critics and art appreciators and et cetera, um, Kincaid sort of represented everything that um, art really shouldn't be. It was often described as sort of escapist kitsch, um, devoid of any sort of critical perspective uh, or stylistic innovation. And the art historian uh, Robert Rosenblum, when asked about Kincaid uh, by the New York Times, said, quote, he doesn't look like an artist who's worth considering, except in terms of supply and demand. And this is a really important phrase, and I think tells us a lot about um, Kincaid's enterprise and why he has been sort of such a controversial um, artist. And just as a side note, I mean, if you grew up or around in the 90s, he was uh, Kincaid. Kincaid was probably an artist whose name you couldn't miss. I mean, I remember hearing about him tons in the 90s, um, but certainly since he since he died uh, in 2012. Uh, and so if you're a younger listener, you might not be uh, as familiar with him. Um, but he really developed uh, an empire around his name. Um, in the, the mid 90s, he was actually traded on the star- stock market. Uh, in the early 2000s, he created a gated community called The Village in uh, Vallejo, California. Um, and at one point, he had about 350 uh Thomas Kincaid's signature galleries. And I certainly remember seeing these in malls uh, when I was growing up. The fact that Thomas Kincaid did become such a, a, a huge business, I think, is one of the reasons why he's sort of perfect for talking about um, for Christmas. On the one hand, his paintings definitely evoke the kinds of warm and fuzzy feelings, or at least try to evoke the kinds of warm and fuzzy feelings that we associate with the holiday season. But on the other hand, the fact that he uh, was at the center of this huge industry, I think, speaks to the fact that um, Christmas now has become a very commercialized holiday that is as much about business as it is about warm and fuzzy feelings. Yeah, and in terms of of the the commercial the broad commercial appeal of Kincaid's work um it has been estimated that one in 20 households in America has at least one Kincaid painting i'm not entirely sure about the accuracy of that statistic because in 2001 i actually saw a program on CBS uh, on 60 minutes uh, on Thomas Kincaid and they went into people's homes who were really avid Kincaid 
uh, fans and collectors and, and people would open closets and literally there would be like hundreds of, of paintings just stacked on shelves. And so given that he does seem to have um, really rabid fans who become hoarders of his work, I'm not entirely sure that that statistic is accurate. Yeah. And when we'll get in later in the episode uh, to talking about the, the business model and the production model um, that in some ways generated uh, that that sort of rabid fanaticism and and, uh, rabid collecting of his works. Um, So in this episode, we're going to unpack both his artistic and his business practices and discuss some of the reasons why he was and continues to be somewhat ironically such a controversial artist and somewhat ironically because when you look at his paintings, they're just absolutely not about, they're not controversial. It's really hard to find something stylistically or in terms of subject matter that's controversial about them. Right. They're desperately trying to be totally innocuous and as inoffensive as possible. And perhaps it's because of that that they become really offensive to a lot of people. Exactly. So just a little background uh, on Kincaid. Uh, He was born in Sacramento in 1958 uh, and grew up in the town of Placerville, California. Um, He went to UC Berkeley for two years and then transferred to the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. In 1980, he was contracted along with his his friend James Gurney um, to produce a sketching handbook that was published by Guptil Publications. Um, and around this time, he also became became a, a born again Christian, which would be a big part of his persona and his career later on. Around that time as well, uh, uh, Kincaid worked on the film Fire and Ice by Ralph Bakshi and Frank Frazetta, um, which is just hilarious to me because when you think of Ralph Bakshi's films, they probably could not be as far away from uh, Thomas Kincaid's later work than one could possibly imagine. Um, and and after this point, he began really making his living as a painter, selling works to California galleries. Uh, by the mid-1990s, he was a huge uh, figure uh, in the United States. Uh, in 1994, he was named Artist of the Year by the National Association of Limited Edition Dealers. And at that point, he took his company public. Uh, in the next year, 1995, Business Week actually named the Thomas Kincaid Company as one of the hot growth companies of the year. Um, so at this point, I want to turn to one of Kincaid's uh, Christmas paintings. He did a number of them. Uh, and this work is called Spirit of Christmas. Uh, and we'll, as always, post uh, an image on our blog, arthistory.today. Um, and this is a work that displays many of the characteristics that define the visual qualities of Kincaid's work. Uh, it's a scene set at dusk with this pastel illuminated sky in the background. In the background, you can see a spire. Presumably, it's a church spire, and it's being illuminated from behind by the setting sun. And if you um, pay attention to things like perspective lines, the diagonal lines in a painting that guide your vision, um, you'll notice that actually the church spire is at the very heart of the painting, at the center of the painting on that horizon line. So Um, in that way that church spire, even though it's very um, sort of hazy and and off in the distance, is positioned as the sort of central organizing focal point of the painting. Right. It's painted in a somewhat impressionistic manner, um, very uh, visible brush strokes in many places, but there's a much greater attention to to naturalistic detail than what you find in the works of someone like Claude Monet. Um, It's situated in a what seems an impossibly 
pre-industrial idyllic sort of village so there are cottages stone a stone bridge in the uh, middle foreground horses and buggies but also what have to be electric lights right there's like a string of lights on that stone bridge i think that that point actually is is really important that there is a, a kind of ambiguity here about what time we're actually located in because i think the whole point of this painting is that it is a place out of time right uh, it, it is a place that is not a specific historical reference. There are no markers here that would tell us that we're in a specific town. We can't even tell what country we're in. We know it's a place that has snow in winter, uh, but beyond that, we really have no sense of where we are. Um, and and also with time, we really don't have a sense of when we are either. Right. There's this fusion of, of both natural and artificial light. So you have the, the dusk or the, the twilight sort of illumination in the background and you have um, light streaming out of these, uh, out of these cottages. Um, and he's, uh, Kincaid is clearly also interested in the effects of light on different surfaces. Again, much like the Impressionists were, we see him um, reflecting light off of especially ice and snow uh, in this painting. Yeah, I think actually one of the most... Um... Uh, uh, attention-grabbing moments in this painting is on the right side where there is that um, is it fire? Yeah, it looks um, like a like like a fire, like yeah. a fire that's that 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 um, children are warming themselves in front of, and dogs as well are hanging out right at the edge of this frozen over pond um, that a girl and her dog are walking on. Um, it, it's just that intense illumination um, at the base of this trail of smoke that draws your eye up vertically. Um, just these in intense, bright moments are always marks of Kincaid's work. And as Sarah is going to talk about, um, the way that the paint is used to highlight those moments, um, is, is one of his hallmarks. Yeah. Um, we also see a number of human interactions, a number of incidents, but there's no real narrative. Um, you, again, as Tina described, we see a girl and her dog. We see people around a fire, but it's really just kind of an, a generic town scene. Um, we can't really we can't really get a story out of it, except that this is. I mean, the spirit of Christmas, presumably. Um, and this is a, a characteristic of, of many of his paintings. And actually, in comparison to a lot of his paintings, there are a lot more um, human figures um, than we see in other works of his. Uh so these kinds of works that, that Kincaid produces, of which uh, The Spirit of Christmas is, is just one good example, um, can be related to a long tradition of landscape painting. There, are, there were sort of categories of landscape painting that were really codified uh, in the 18th century, um, especially the idea of uh, the beautiful and the picturesque. So there are, um, there were many publications that were were produced in the 18th and 19th century describing what a what a picturesque landscape should look like and what a beautiful landscape should look like so these were very loaded terms um in the 18th and 19th centuries and definitely um things that uh Kincaid would have been familiar with um and he was probably also looking especially at American landscape artists who are working in these same t traditions of the picturesque and the beautiful um artists like Asher B. Durand, William Merritt Chase, um and Frederick Edwin Church and um Kincaid actually named each of his daughters. He had four daughters after a particular American painter. And I know one of one of them was was Merritt. Um, so definitely coming from William Merritt Chase. Interesting. Yeah. One of the um, 
effects of these American landscape paintings, of course, um, has to do with a particular ideology, a particular um, sort of political point of view, which is that of manifest destiny. So a lot of landscape paintings that were produced in the 19th century were about presenting the American landscape as um, a, a free, open, available, uninhabited um, <laughs> a natural resource that Americans should exploit, um, that, that was in fact, it was their God-given right to exploit. So um, uh, I think Kincaid's paintings are in this tradition of the American landscape, not only because it's about, you know, this beautiful wide open space, um, but also because they, they have their own perhaps um, sort of political point of view. And again, I'm sort of dancing around this issue, but they're political precisely because they try to be apolitical. Well, we've been talking about Kincaid's paintings, but one of the most important things to understand about the works that you're seeing in his galleries or things that people have purchased, um, these are not actually paintings. Instead, they're high quality digital photolithographic reproductions. Um, even though these are prints, they're not original, quote unquote, original paintings, um, there is there are still layers of authenticity and rarity that are that are really choreographed by the Kincaid company. And this is done specifically through the additions pyramid. Um, so like a pyramid, prints get more expensive as they become more exclusive, exclusive as you go sort of further up the pyramid. The more exclusive and hence more expensive works um, are distinguished by things like hand numbering, um, limited distribution, stamps and foil seals, um, particular types of signatures and other kind of identifying marks. Um, the lowest level uh, of a print that you can get is a standard numbered print on pa paper. And the highest level is what's called a master edition, which includes hand highlighting um, and Kincaid's authorized uh, security signatures followed by the letters M uh, slash E for master edition. Um, so I, I mentioned uh, the, the term hand highlighting. Uh, the Kincaid Company uh, has about 30 master highlighters is what they're called. Um, so uh, these are, are artists who um, are often sent to the Kincaid galleries um, to do personalized highlighting and to actually interact with customers. Highlighting, uh, this kind of hand highlighting was described um, by the author Susan Orlean uh, in a 2001 New Yorker piece on, on Kincaid as, quote, not that different from highlighting your hair. It entails uh, stippling tiny bright dots of paint on the picture to give it more texture and luminescence. Uh, the customer could sit with the highlighter and watch the process and even make requests for a little more pink on the rose bushes, say, or a bit more green on the trees. So uh, one of these master highlighters will go in and take uh, a print and just add on layers of paint to really um, highlight particular areas and looking at back at the spirit of Christmas I would imagine uh, the the illumination um, on the snow in the foreground that sort of um, saturated uh, yellow color is something that a master highlighter would probably focus on um, it's in the foreground it's more it's it's closer it's it's perspectively closer to us um, as viewers so there would presumably um, they would presumably want to have more detail 
And these these master highlighters uh, are are trained both in the practice of highlighting, um, in the different variations of Kincaid's paintings, and even in his personal biography. So when customers um, uh, go to these events where they can have a painting or have a print rather um, highlighted uh, by a master highlighter, they can have this personal interaction and feel like they're getting the experience of of interacting with Kincaid, even though it's not. It's just one of his basically studio assistants. So I actually looked up the options, the different options that you can order um, for the spirit of Christmas uh, through the, the Thomas Kincaid Company's website. Um, the most basic option uh, is an 18 by 27 inch unframed uh, standard numbered print on paper, which runs $230. And the most elaborate version is a 28 by 42 inch framed gallery proof print on canvas, which is $2,540. Um, you can also get this painting as a nightlight or a ceramic mug and those run for about 15 to 20 dollars. Uh, I've been mentioning um, the galleries, the Thomas Kincaid signature galleries. Um, this was a, a huge part of, of um, building the, the Kincaid empire, especially in the 90s. In, in, in talking about um, art, sort of modern art galleries today and how his, uh, his galleries contrast with those Kincaid said quote art galleries are very sterile they're white walls with hard surfaces they echo when you walk in but we upset the paradigm and turn it on its ear we said our we said our art galleries are going to feel like homes they're going to feel comfortable there are couches in there and there are fireplaces end quote so um these are very again going with that theme of of uh comfort and a place that you want to come home to at the end of the day they really evoke that sense um very very uh sort of dim lighting fireplaces chintzy couches and really friendly employees who who create this warm inviting atmosphere uh and uh, the art historian uh, Michael Clapper describes these galleries uh, as, as follows. He said, Kincaid's galleries attempt to sell an experience as well as a product. The experience of being transported by the magic of Kincaid's art from a mall and one's mundane suburban consumerism to an idyllic domestic wonderland. I want to turn now to some of the controversy surrounding Kincaid, his work, his galleries, and even his his persona. Um, and I, I'm going to quote Kincaid again. He's he's kind of similar to Jeff Koons in a number of ways that he has this very sort of um, he has a, a sort of motivational speaker quality to the way that to to his phraseology and um, how he presents himself. Um, and at one point, I, I read in one interview where he said if he wasn't going to be a painter, he would be a motivational speaker. Um, but anyway, so Kincaid describes himself uh, as follows. He says, he said, uh, I'm a firebrand. I will sit down and debate the grand tradition with anyone. I'm really the most controversial artist in the world, which seems counterintuitive um, because as as we've been mentioning sort of the point of of his works uh, when you look at them is that they they are um, attempt so vehemently to avoid controversy but um, uh, uh, because of that they become controversial in their own way um, and in his lifetime Kincaid was actually a very controversial artist for a number of reasons first of all the style of these works it's a style that 
many, many people just think is absolutely horrendously ugly. And just on a personal preference note, I find them really ugly. And I can't even put into words why I think so. Another issue that many people have uh, with with Kincaid's work is the the subject matter. I mean, pretty much um, categorically, his images uh, display this this whitewashed escapist vision um, of American life. Once again, um, they're they're completely devoid of controversy, uh, which in, at least in terms of uh, the the contemporary art world, um, it was part of what makes them controversial. I mean, you can compare Kincaid to someone like uh, like Kara Walker, we discussed in a in a previous episode, um, who does these these works that are are meant to provoke uh, the audience, meant to shock the audience, and she's an absolute darling of the art world. People absolutely love her, um, and the fact that Kincaid is not showing the 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 negative uh the negative aspects of of american life and any sort of socio-political issues any issues dealing with race is very problematic and this sort of brings up questions of what is art supposed to be and and for kincaid and he said this countless times um that he wanted to give people an uplifting vision of life, something to strive for, rather than showing uh, the negative sides um, of contemporary life. And I think a, a really good um, summation of this idea comes from uh, Kenneth Baker, who said, Kincaid's products have a consistent message that if we want the feeling of living in a conflict-free world, we can buy it. The cost, as distinct from the price of this feeling, is mere denial of all one's experience of citizenship, of human relations, of historical awareness. I want to be really clear here about what the criticism of Kincaid's work is. It's not that art shouldn't make you feel good. It's a little more complicated than that. So um, Matisse, a a very beloved artist, um, said something once, Uh, And I'm going to go ahead and read this quote. He said, what I dream of is an art of balance, of purity and serenity, devoid of troubling or depressing subject matter, an art which could be for every mental worker, for the businessman as well as the man of letters, for example, a soothing, calming influence on the mind, something like a good armchair, which provides relaxation from physical fatigue. So this is Matisse's famous art should be like a comfortable armchair um, quotation. Now, there is a big difference between providing an experience of comfort, uh, a sort of uh, perhaps escapist fantasy, if you will, and writing a revisionist history, which is what Kincaid's paintings do. It's not that they shouldn't offer pleasure, it's that the cost of that pleasure, um, and I, this is why I love this, this Kenneth Baker quote, right? That the cost of that pleasure, not the price you pay for the paintings, but the cost of that pleasure is a rewriting or a whitewashing of history. And that's the problem with Kincaid's work, I think. So in order to understand this, um, I think it helps to compare um, Kincaid to uh, the Impressionist painter Claude Monet, um, which is actually a comparison that I make when I'm trying to help students understand Monet. I compare him to Kincaid. Um, It's not a totally crazy comparison to make, as Sarah mentioned. There is a sort of impressionistic uh, quality to Kincaid's paintings because of the, the looseness of his brushstroke a little bit. Um, Monet had a habit of of making paintings that 
willfully ignored the encroachment of modernity upon the suburbs and and the countryside. So an example of this would be um, uh, he painted a bridge that had been bombed during a recent conflict. And he painted the bridge as if it was totally intact, as if the war had never happened. Um, or he painted a, a, a town sort of outside on the outskirts of the city of Paris that um, had been uh, taken over by factories. And Monet positioned his canvas so that all of the factories were screened out of view by trees and other stuff. So um, that is the problem. It's that they ignore history in that same way um, in order or they, they, they change the, the historical account in order to offer a more pleasing view um, that they erase the realities of history and of politics. Um, I think that you can actually see Kincaid doing this very particularly in this work, The Spirit of Christmas. Um, think about A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, which I think is the sort of obvious reference point here. What Kincaid is getting from the Dickensian model is that Victorian um, world, right? So we, it looks sort of like a, a Victorian scene with the horse and buggies. And, you know, you can, if you were going to roughly place it in, in, um, in time and space, you might say, you know, that period of time, either in America or in Europe. Um, the painting also invokes a kind of Dickensian model because it leaves you with this warm and fuzzy feeling of, isn't it great to be together around Christmas time, spending um, the holidays with the ones that you love? The problem is that Kincaid very willfully leaves out one of the most important parts of Dickens's story, which is the criticism, a criticism of greed, driven by selfishness that has become not merely a, a personal character flaw for certain characters, right? But a, a, a societal problem, a social problem. He, Dickens is really diagnosing not just sort of one person who is evil, but, but a whole society. It's an indictment of a society that would let its most vulnerable um, uh, citizens become so downtrodden. And that level of criticism, a criticism, an indictment of uh, social and economic realities is what Dickens is known for and is what Kincaid leaves out while keeping the rest of it. Ironically, it's exactly the same characteristics um, that Dickens is condemning that Kincaid himself has been accused of. So selfishness and greed um, for example, um, you know, there's a question of whether he basically takes credit um, for the work of others in an unfair manner. Um, there's a question of whether he um, wasn't totally honest uh, in his dealings with um, the, the gallery franchises, um, that he didn't uh, accurately disclose financial information that would have discouraged people from investing in his company. Um, and then on top of all of that, his public persona, I mean, his character does seem to have been a bit flawed. Um, he was arrested um, uh, for public drunkenness. He had a DUI. Um, he heckled artists and performers, including this really weird story about him um, heckling Siegfried and Roy. Yeah. And he yelled, cod piece, cod piece during one of their performances. Yeah. I mean, you just have to be an egomaniac to think that, you know, that you are entitled to insert your you know, opinion like that in public while someone else is working. Um, 
And then uh, another sort of equally bizarre story where he urinated on a Winnie the Pooh figure at the Disneyland Hotel in Anaheim um, and, and said, this one's for you, Walt. Yeah, and uh, the, these sort of incidents um, in and of themselves, I mean, everybody has issues. Every person is flawed. But the, the, the key uh, problem with respect to Kincaid is that he promoted himself, uh, he, he promoted himself uh, most acutely in terms of his works embodying Christian values. I mean, he very uh, openly projected himself as a Christian painter. And with incidents like these, uh, they, they uh, led people to question the, um, uh, the sort of veracity of those claims and suggest that perhaps he was exploiting uh, his, his customers, Christian beliefs in order to build this empire for himself. And that's, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty damning claim. And, and I would be careful about making that claim, but well, here's a less damning claim. He's a hypocrite. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, maybe not less damning, but uh, <clears throat> a less controversial uh, claim. Uh, you know, it, it's pretty apparent that he promoted himself as somebody who was a defender of conservative values, of family values, um, who really wanted art um, to be pleasurable. So also he's uh, conservative aesthetically, um, you know, against people who wanted, you know, art to be more sort of politically aware. Um, and yet here he is like, you know, urinating on Winnie the Pooh. I mean, it, it, it's a, it, it sort of boggles the mind. Yeah. When he died, uh, his family initially said that he died of natural circumstances and he was what? 50, he was 50, yeah, 54, I think. Um, but the autopsy later showed that it was acute intoxication from alcohol and Valium. So, I mean, I think that in a, in a way, his story is ultimately really sad because it just shows that no matter how far you run from reality, whether it's sort of social evils or or even just the idea of modernity, of time having passed, of the world not being this fantasy um, of, you know, happy little colleges and happy little people getting along and, and there's never any conflict and there's no dis discord and, and uh, no social problems, that no matter how far you run from that, it's an impossible project, that it, reality has to catch up with you sooner or later. Perhaps not the most uplifting Christmas story uh, or Christmas episode in the world, but that was purposeful. Um, we, we didn't want to just also do some whitewashed uh, art historical <laughs> uh, image of Christmas. So um, I can offer one positive um, interpretation of Kincaid's life and work, uh, it, which is also a segue into our next episode, and that is that Kincaid at the very least, forced those of us who love and talk about and, and consume art to admit a cold, hard fact, and that is that art is not some sphere of, of enjoyment, of pleasure that is separate from reality, that is separate from um, the economy, for example, right? I mean, we love, we meaning like us in the art world, love to sort of, you know, point and laugh at Kincaid that he made himself into this big company and was traded on the stock market and, you know, got into the business of building suburb divisions. 
um, modeled after his paintings for people who wanted to sort of live inside one of his paintings because there were such, um, you know, avid fans. Talk uh, about Stepford Wives suburbia. It's creepy. Yeah, it's super creepy. But, you know, there's something to be said here about uh, throwing stones in a glass house because mm-hmm. all art, you know, artists have to eat. Art historians have to eat. Hopefully we get to eat eventually. Um, you know, art critics have to eat. Art writers have to eat. Um, we're embedded in, in a, uh, you know, in an economic system that is bigger than us. And Kuhn's, sorry, wow, that yeah. was just Freudian slip. Yeah. Um, an appropriate one. An appropriate one. Um, <clears throat> uh, Kincaid, um, very openly, I think, in, in his practice, um, admitted something that the rest of us are very uh, are very sort of embarrassed to admit. And so n- in our next episode, we're going to have um, a special visitor who's going to talk to us about the art market and the realities of the art market, especially today um, with the, the incredible um, records that we saw being broken in the auctions this fall, um, perhaps... Um, indicating a bit of a, a bubble and uh, we're going to try to talk about whether or not that bubble is going to burst and what it means for, for art now. Great segue uh, into our next episode. Uh, as always, you can uh, find us on the internet at our uh, webpage, arthistory.today. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash arthistorytoday. Uh, and you can connect uh, with us on Twitter. We're always looking for new episode ideas and feedback. Um, our Twitter handle is arthisttoday. That's A-R-T-H-I-S-T-T-O-D-A-Y.